so much for having me today. I'm so honored to be here. I'm trying to pull myself together. That music was so beautiful. I got getting choked up. I was like, I got to pull it together. Um, so thank, thank you again for, for being here. Um, so today i um, like to share about three people. Um, Craig graciously invited me here. And so I want to share about three people that um, have played a large role in my, my own research, but also I think their lives have a lot to tell us and teach us today. So I decided on Richard Allen, Dorina Lee, and Henry Mineal Turner, and I entitled my talk Going Against the Grain because each in their own ways, they sought to push back against the cultural norms of their time, and they even challenged what other Christians thought was appropriate behavior for what Christians should do. So I'll start with uh, Richard Allen. Richard Allen was born a slave of a Quaker master in 1716 in Philadelphia, he was sold to a Methodist, became a Methodist, and eventually was able to purchase his freedom. He said he chose to become a Methodist because when they came to him, they were able to share the gospel to him in a way that was plain and clear that he could understand it fully. He joined the predominantly white St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia, and he began to build its black membership and reach out to other African Americans to join the church and share the message that he had received. So St. George's Church in Philadelphia, like many white churches of the time, weren't exempt from the racial prejudice and discrimination of the time period. For example, many churches still had segregated seating, so there'd be a section for African American members in the back and a section for white members in the front. So in the early 19th century, not only did some churches not challenge the racial discrimination of the time, they actually reinforced it. In his autobiography, Richard Allen describes what occurred one Sunday morning in that St. George's Church in Philadelphia. The section of African Americans that was designated for them the seat was under construction during that Sunday, and so it was unclear where the African American section was in the church and where the white seating section was. And so as Richard Allen and other African Americans entered the church that morning to worship, it was unclear. And so they were moving around trying to figure out where they should seat, sit. And so while they're trying to figure that out, the pastor began to pray. And so out of recognition to that, the, the black members stopped where they were, knelt down and began to pray. Uh, but they happened to be still sitting, kneeling in the section, the white section of the church. And so the white ushers came over and said, no, you can't be here. But the African-American members, they're, they're praying. They're acknowledging God, praying. And they said, no, you can't, can't kneel here. So they continue to pull them off their feet. Richard Allen and others said, you know, just let us finish praying, and then we'll move to the black section. But they said, no, you have to go right now. You're in the white section. And so this, this disrupted the service. The African-Americans were unclear. The prayer ended. And then Richard Allen, in his autobiography, wrote about that morning, after they were pulled off their knees, he wrote, by this time prayer was over and we all went out of the church in a body and they were no more plagued with us in the church. 
This is one of the catalysts for the founding of the AME church, but this story was repeated over and over again in many different denominations where black and white members worshiped together. There was always, almost always one of those moments where it's sort of that tipping point, that sort of final straw where they said, we just can't be here anymore. We have to have our own space. So black, many black denominations were formed uh, so that African Americans could worship in the way that they saw fit. However, it was often the treatment by white ministers and congregants that I mentioned repeated over and over again that was the final catalyst for that. So as I mentioned, there was segregated seating in many churches, so a black section and a white section. African-American members often had to wait for the white members to take communion before they could take it. Uh, there's even um, accounts of white ministers refusing to hold black babies because they felt like they didn't want to touch them, and so black babies wouldn't be baptized in certain churches. And so these sort of troubling practices over and over led many African-Americans to sort of seek their own church homes. So Richard Allen was concerned definitely about the discrimination within churches, but he's also concerned about discrimination that occurred in the broader society. In 1780 in Philadelphia, they passed a law, what they called gradual emancipation, so that over time African-Americans would be freed um, after a few years but for many uh, white Americans at the time, there was concern about what would this mean if African Americans were freed? What would that look like? What would society look like? So there's lots of concern about what this law would mean in Philadelphia. At the same time, in 1793, there was a large yellow fever outbreak in Philadelphia. Richard Allen saw the op saw this, this yellow fever outbreak as an opportunity to not only to help people, to, to, but also to impact the discourse about this question about whether African Americans should be free or not. What would the impact be? So that by helping people, he could change the way that people saw African Americans and would see that in their efforts to help others, that they were really worthy to become uh, American citizens, be full American citizens. So... Uh, so unlike COVID today, where it can be kind of unclear whether someone has the virus, unless you test for it, in 1793, it was really clear who had yellow fever or not. Once jaundice set in, often the, the, um, the person's skin would become yellow, and then the whites of their eyes would also become yellow. So it was really clear who had it, and it was, and it was a very gruesome kind of death that would often follow. So Richard and Alan and others... Uh, tried to help others, um, so they sought uh, the, um, they were taught by Benjamin Rust, a prominent physician of the time, about the, the basic treatment or how do you treat people with yellow fever. Um, he, he described this process of bleeding, which sounds like a really terrible process, but the idea was that you could sort of balance the bodily fluids in people's bodies by sort of draining them of these different fluids. Uh, so unlike um, other, well, like many other, um, when viruses or epidemics would emerge, oftentimes people would, uh, when the first reports of yellow fever occurred, uh, those who had the financial means, they would actually leave the city right away before the government would impose the, the quarantine, and so they could escape. But for those that didn't have the financial means to leave, they were often sort of left there to be sick and often died in these cities without the resource, without uh, food and other resources being led into the city. So Richard Allen, Absalon Jones, and a number of other African-Americans risked their own lives, thought they are going to help other people, got trained to help people to treat yellow fever, stayed in Philadelphia when others left, 
uh, left their families and helped others to uh, try to help them deal with yellow fever, in some cases cure their, um, cure their disease. The dynamic is complicated because at the time, the medical professions thought that African Americans couldn't contract yellow fever. So that impact, so that while it was a very noble act, they were trying to help others, this idea that African Americans couldn't catch it. And so it was really shocking when Rich Allen actually contracted yellow fever and got really sick, um, but he was able to recover. Um, and so he and others got sick, helped others. And so the idea, again, for Rich Allen was to help people, but also to change the way people saw African Americans on a broader scale. But instead of people recognizing the efforts of African Americans to fight and help yellow fever, the white press, uh, in some cases, didn't even acknowledge the work of African Americans, but in some cases, their work was actually vilified. Matthew Carey, a, a white preacher at the time, wrote a best selling account of the history of yellow fever in 1793. In it, he described that African Americans had looted and robbed white homes during the crisis. Um, and this perception of African Americans, this characterization, actually led to more violence and discrimination against African Americans. And so not only was Richard Allen and others' work not recognized, they were actually vilified for doing this stuff and mischaracterized in the broader white press. So Richard Allen and Absalom Jones wrote their own account of the history of the yellow fever epidemic. They entitled their, their work, A Narrative of the Proceedings of the Black People During the Late Awful Calamity in Philadelphia in the year 1793. This was the first book that was copyrighted by black authors in America. In their narrative, Allen and Jones corrected the public record, especially this erroneous perception that African Americans had, quote, taken advantage of the distressed situation of people. Richard Allen would go on to do lots of other things in his career, too many to, to go into this morning, um, but it's, it's always struck me when I read his account of how strong his enduring his faith was. Facing all of that prejudice and discrimination, he never seemed to get hardened by it. Instead, his relationship with God propelled him forward to create a space where African Americans could feel safe and worship. When people vilified him for the work that he had done helping others, he wrote his own book to correct what really happened and what God had done in Philadelphia. Another person that was impacted by Richard Allen was Jarena Lee. Jarena Lee was born free in, on February 11, 1783 in Cape May, New Jersey. In, 18, in 1884, after hearing Richard Allen preach one day, Drina Lee decided to join Allen's church. Five years later, she felt called to preach herself. Uh, she wrote her own autobiography, which she entitled The Religious Experience of Drina Lee, a colored lady giving an account of her call to preach the gospel uh, in 1836. In her autobiography, Drina Lee describes her call to preach. She writes, between four or five years after my sanctification, on a certain time, an impressive silence fell upon me, 
And I stood as if someone was about to speak to me. Yet, yet I had no such thought in my heart. But to my utter surprise, there seemed to be a sound which I thought I distinctly heard and most certainly understood, which said to me, go preach the gospel. I immediately replied out loud, no one will believe me. Again, I listened, and again, the voice seemed to say, preach the gospel. I will put words in your mouth and will turn your enemies to friends. Lee was a gifted orator and even preached at Richard Allen's Mother Bethel Church that he created, his first church that he created after leaving the Methodist Episcopal Church. Allen and other African Americans who had re recently left the Methodist Episcopal Church, um, so the AME tradition was still very much a movement. Things hadn't been put in place. The doctrines, the roles in the church were still pretty much in flux. Firm rules and doctrines hadn't been in place yet. There was a movement. They were rejecting the white church that they were a part of, and they were trying to create something new. So initially, Drina Lee preaches at lots of different black churches throughout the Northeast. Uh, she speaks to mixed congregation of men and women. Um, however, as the AME tradition transitioned from a movement to more of an official institution, more and more of the elements became fixed. One of those was, pro was prohibitions against women preaching. So over time, as Jarena Lee traveled to the various black and white churches, she found more and more pulpits close to her. Both black churches and white churches at the time did not ordain women. And it's always striking to me historically that the black men who had just experienced discrimination and had not been allowed to preach at white churches when they began to set up independent black denominations, they put in many of those same uh, prohibitions on black women in the churches. The official doctrines of the African Methodist Episcopal Church would be, as they became concretized, became almost exactly the same as those of the white Methodist Episcopal Churches of the time. Although women had historically outnumbered men in black churches, they very rarely were able to hold official leadership positions in the churches. The idea of women preaching to mixed congregations of men and women ran counter to notions of the time of the proper sphere for women, which was usually defined as being in the home or maybe in certain aspects of the church, such as teaching, in this, such as teaching children in the Sunday school. So the official stance for many of the congregations at the time was that women didn't have the authority to preach. However, since God had called her to preach, Jerelia said that God's inspiration gave her the authority to preach. Facing resistance from lots of the churches in the area, Jerelia Lee had to make her own way, create her own ministry, and draw upon her own spiritual relationship with God as her authority to preach. Lee became an itinerant revivalist, traveling and preaching wherever she was able. When people questioned Lee's authority uh, to preach, 
uh, she wrote in her autobiography that she would say, quote, if the man may preach because the Savior died for him, why not the woman see he died for her also? Is he not a whole Savior instead of a half one? As those who hold it for a woman to preach would seem to make it appear. Drina Lee drew upon passage in the Bible where Jesus appeared to, to women such as Mary after his resurrection. She wrote, did not, Mary first pe- sir, did not Mary first preach the risen Savior? And is not the doctrine of the resurrection, the very climax of Christianity, hangs not all our hope on this, as argued by St. Paul? Then did not Mary, a woman, preach the gospel? For she preached the resurrection of the crucified Son of God. Many churches also prevented women from traveling alone to do missionary work and required them to go with their husbands. But after, but after her husband passed away, Jarena Lee continued to walk several miles a day following her call to preach and would speak to communities across the country. While men were often praised for leaving their families to do missionary work, At the time, Lee was often criticized for, quote, abandoning her children. In her autobiography, again, she describes the challenges of being in the ministry and being a mother. She wrote, about this time I had a call to preach at a place about 30 miles distant among the Methodists, with whom I remained one week, and during the whole time, Not a thought of my little son came into my mind. It was hid from me, lest I should have been diverted from the work I had to do to look after my son. As a woman, Jarena Lee had all of these additional burdens and barriers and expectations placed upon her, but she continued to do what God called her to do. She would go on to become one of the most famous preachers of all time and open doors from a number of other preachers that would come after her. In the, in the late 19th century, Henry Mino Turner would experience different challenges. He began as a member and exhorter of the Methodist Episcopal Church South. Uh, in, 15, in 1858, Turner also joined the AME Church. He was appointed as the first chaplain to the first regiment of colored troops in 1863 and was the first black chaplain in the regular army. After the Civil War, Turner became active in politics and in 1868 was elected to the Georgia State Legislature. Although 27 other African Americans were also elected, a coalition of white and white Democrats and Republicans declared that the black members were ineligible for office and disqualified them and refused to seat them in their positions. After that, Turner left politics, uh, carried a number of different professions, eventually became a bishop in the Amy Church from 1880 to 1892. He founded two newspapers, The Voice of Missions and The Voice of the People. Uh, But he was perhaps most passionate about the treatment of African Americans in the South. 
um, and the racial discrimination and prejudice that they experienced. Having experienced racism and discrimination himself, Turner began to question whether black Americans would ever be able to live up to their full potential in America. So he began to advocate advocate for a turn of African Americans to Africa. Turner believed that forming their own homeland in Africa would instill a kind of racial pride in African Americans. Rather than the large-scale immigration that others proposed, Turner suggested that a small number of highly trained African Americans could go back to Africa, work together with Africans, and form a society where African Americans could thrive outside of the racist and restrictive environment of America. While his vision for his Back to Africa movement was never fully realized, Turner's emphasis on the importance of racial pride for black Christians was influential and enduring. Turner famously said, God is a Negro, and raised concerns about the self-hatred that many African Americans had for their own culture and the color of their skin and the texture of their hair. He was concerned about internalizing and praying to a to depictions of a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. Turner questioned what it did psychologically to a people if they worshipped a God that didn't look like them. This line of thinking about raising racial consciousness of black people would be influential and impact a number of subsequent black leaders, including Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X. For his views... um, We'll just go. We'll just go. We'll just go down here. Get that out of there. For his views, many African Americans at the time called him. Don't do that. Don't do that. Okay. For his views. For his views, many people at the time called him a race traitor. Uh, but he held firm in his convictions that um, of what he believed to be the best course of action for African Americans. So I find the stories of, of Richard Allen, Jarena Lee, and Henry Manil Turner compelling for lots of different reasons. But I guess uh, the one for me personally is that they faced all the severe racial um, prejudice and discrimination. And there were so many times that they could have said that they were done with Christianity or they were done with God. Um, but, in, but instead, their faith propelled them forward. They were able to separate the way that people treated them and were empowered by their relationship with God. Richard Allen was pulled off of his knees during prayer. And he, and he said he was done with that treatment, but it was his God, relationship with God that would propel him forward. Jarena Lee felt called to preach by God, had all these obstacles put in her way, but it was a relationship with God propelled her forward to keep going. Henry Mill Turner was called a race traitor uh, for many of his positions, but his relationship with God kept him moving forward. Each of their journeys was unique, but they each pushed back against the cultural norms of their time and even challenged what other Christians felt like was appropriate behavior for Christians to do. So I find a kind of encouragement and freedom in their stories. Uh. 
So if you're like me and your spiritual journey doesn't necessarily look like those of others, that can actually be a really good thing because it could be a sign that God's trying to do something new for you and the people around you. Thank you so much for having me come out today. Thank you. Uh,